0: Let me ask you to turn to 1 Peter, chapter 2, as we continue our series in that wonderful little book, 1 Peter, chapter 2. We'll be looking at the last two verses in that chapter this morning. Give you a moment to find that. First Peter chapter 2, let's read verses 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were, you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. In verse 13 of this chapter, Peter launched into a consideration of the Christian's submission to others in everyday life. We're all to submit to human government, verses 13 through 17. Slaves were to submit to their masters, or in our case, our employers. We see that in verses 18 through 25. In verses 18 through 25, Peter speaks of the fact that sometimes slaves and servants... Have unjust masters, or in our case bosses, who mistreat them. And he describes how Christians should respond to such masters. How does a believer respond if their boss, in our day and age, or if their owner, in that day, was unjust and treated them in ungodly way? As he deals with that, he presents Christ as the model and example of one who suffered unjustly. So he... Because of Christ, he's the model. If you're wondering how to handle a situation in life where you're being treated unjustly, look at Christ. He's a perfect example of how we should respond. He tells his original audience and us, that, verse 21, that Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. In verses 22 and 23, according to Peter, when Jesus suffered, he committed no sin, Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Instead of responding in a wrong way, our Savior, when being mistreated, suffering, trusted in the Father. God knows what he's doing. He is just and righteous. I can rest in him, even in this situation. When we suffer, folks, at the hands of of others, we must never, in following Christ's example, we must never sin, deceive, revile, or threaten. We should instead entrust ourselves to the all wise and sovereign God. Well, having brought up Jesus' unjust suffering, Peter just can't help but dwell for a few moments on the nature of his suffering and what it accomplishes for those of the human race who turn to him. So, in verses 24 and 25, he just can't help, once he's brought up the suffering of Christ, he's got to dwell in it just a few moments. What did Jesus do? When we talk about his suffering, what did Jesus do? What did did, did that entail? And what did it accomplish for those who look to him, who look to Christ? And we're looking at verses 24 and 25 this morning. The truths of these verses are wonderful. Wonderful to remember, wonderful to reconsider, wonderful to dwell on. And for those of us who who know Christ, verses 24 and 25 really call us to do something. What do we do with these truths? Well, we have neighbors and co-workers and friends, people we love, who have not come to Christ. And so these verses, as we reconsider what Christ has done, these verses call us. To leave our comfort zones and begin reaching out. To begin developing relationships with neighbors and co-workers. In case of family, to encourage those relationships further. And in the context of those relationships, give them what we see, the truths we see in verses 24 and 25. There's an implicit command here. Whenever the gospel is communicated and we as believers rethink it, there's an implicit command to tell others. And for any hearing my voice today who have not bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, let me encourage you as we look at these, te- these two verses, this text, to run to him today. We're not, any of us, promised another moment. We're not promised another breath. So Let's look to this text and run to him if we haven't done that. The cross we see in this text, the cross was a place of horrific suffering and is a place of wondrous blessing. Let's pray and we'll look into these two verses. Thank you, Father, for for this text. We're thankful that Peter, and we we realize that Peter just can't help as he's speaking of the sufferings of Christ as our example and our model, as he speaks of him uh, never sinning, never deceiving, never reviling, never threatening in return, but rather trusting in you, Father, As he was suffering, as he considers that, he just can't help but think again of what that suffering entailed and what it accomplishes for those who trust in Christ. We're thankful for that. We're thankful for these verses. Use them in our hearts today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at these two verses, we find that it answers really two questions. These two verses answer the questions what did Jesus do and why did he do it? So, first of all, what did Jesus do? He took the punishment for our sins. Verse 24 clearly stated, For he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We really can break that down to three other questions. What did he do? He bore our sins. How did he do it? In his body or by means of his physical suffering. Where did he do it? On the tree, on the cross. This is the message, folks, that saves. This is the message that brings eternal life. This is God's provision of forgiveness. Jesus bore your sins, my sins, on the cross. Let's look at a few other things that we see in this, these verses, specifically beginning of verse 24. First of all, notice, he himself. He himself. That's a really strong way of saying it. Why did Peter Save a little ink here. Just write, he bore our sins in his body. That's all he needs to say. We know what he's talking about. He's talking about Jesus. Why add the himself? By the way, the English text is exactly right. It reads, he, himself. Why does he bother with that? Because he wants to make it crystal clear. He wants to be specific and clear. As clear as he can be. He wants there to be no confusion. There will be uh, other so-called messiahs who will, will come, you know, come along claiming to be, that they should be followed. But make no mistake, he's leaving no opportunity for, con, for confusion, no open door. I wonder if it's Jesus or not. No, he himself. And there's no other. Secondly, the problem we see here between God and man is man's sin. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Now look at that phraseology there because I'm going to ask you to rethink it a little. Sin is not a footnote in this text. Sin is not a minor issue, it's the primary issue. In our English Bibles, we can't, we can't see exactly. The English Bible, uh, our translations have done a good job of translating, and they made it fluid, they made it easy to, to read. But look at that phrase. Let me tell you what the original text actually says. It says, Who the sins of us he himself bore in his body on the tree. That's a weird way of saying it, isn't it? Who? The sins of us. He himself bore. Our sins. You'd never never say it that way, right? And the Greeks wouldn't either, by the way. Their sentence structure, their grammar is very similar to ours, noun, verb, so forth, direct object. So the normal way of wording it would be just as we have in our English Bibles. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. But the Greek doesn't say that. Peter doesn't write it that way. What they would do is, in order to emphasize something, listen, I don't want you to miss something. I want to emphasize something. I don't want you to just kind of read past this. So he takes the words and places them out of order and places the most important thing in the front of the sentence. Who? The sins of us he bore. Again, he wants to make it crystal clear what the issue is. Folks, sin is the issue. Our rebellion against God. Now, our world has redefined sin to the extent that it means basically nothing. We shouldn't speak of people as sinners. People don't lie or deceive. They don't lie or deceive. They exaggerate. Or they misspeak. People aren't liars, they're disingenuous. Isn't that interesting? We'll take a a one-syllable word that's really clear, liar, and we'll change into a harder word, five-syllable word, disingenuous. What does the word disingenuous mean? Liar. Let's just use the word liar. It's clear, it's easier. But we're not gonna do that because the bigger, classier word kind of softens it maybe a little. People don't do wrong. They don't sin. They make mistakes. People don't commit adultery. They commit indiscretions. Again, the world just waters down because we're trying to get rid of the concept of sin, rebellion, wickedness. Let's use terms that may just soften it a little bit. And unfortunately, now in Christianity, we're doing the same things. Pastors don't preach on. Sin, rebellion, wickedness, depravity anymore. I mean, often not here. Thankfully, that's why we're all here. But in so many churches now, sin has kind of become a footnote. Even in the gospel being communicated, sometimes it's a little bit of a footnote. It can't be a footnote. This text is crystal clear. For the sins of us. Sin is the issue. It's what separates us from God. God. No, pastor, you're totally wrong. Christianity is about love and acceptance, so we're not going to talk about sin. It is about love and acceptance. I completely agree. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son to die on the cross so sinners could have a relationship with God, could be forgiven of their sin. It is about love. It is about acceptance. What's the problem? We're not acceptable because of our sin. And so it's by means of the gospel and us trusting Christ, that we become acceptable. So I totally agree it's about love and acceptance, just not the way it's communicated so often. Notice also here, Jesus bore our sins plural on the cross. It's a plural. Peter uses that word, plural, sins plural, to point out the breadth of Christ's saving work. When he suffered on the cross, he did not simply take the lump sum of our sin upon himself. He took every single individual sin. It's like the difference between a hundred dollar bill and a hundred dollars in pennies. How many of you want to haul around a hundred dollars in pennies to go to Meijer to buy your groceries? You'd have to have a wheelbarrow I think. And the weight of that. Well that's the idea here. It's not that He just bore our lump sum sin but every single individual, every single solitary act of rebellion every single act of selfishness and sin and unkindness and and actions that are unkind and unworthy of him, every self-centered attitude now what exactly does the Bible mean here when it states that Christ bore our sins on the tree God the Father counted our sins against Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.21, a text you probably know well. He made him to be sin. The Father made Christ, made him to be sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father counted our sins as belonging to Christ, made Him to be sin. As He looked at Christ on the cross, poured upon Him all of the sins, individual sins of the human race, He looked upon Him and counted Him as one who had committed those those sins. As if those sins belonged to Him. And then He punished Him for those sins, which, of course, He committed none of them. The Father looked at him as a sinner and punished him as a sinner. Why? Second Corinthians, that we might become the righteousness of God. Counted him as a sinner, poured upon him the wrath, the anger that those sins deserve so that you and I, clothed in wickedness as we are, if we trust Christ, can now be clothed in his righteousness. The Father won't see us now in our wickedness. Instead, he sees us in Christ, a phrase used throughout the epistles, especially by Paul. He sees us in his righteousness. I think Peter has in mind Isaiah 53, verse 6 of Isaiah 53. The Father has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Really referencing, to the Old Testament sacrifices. The sins of a, a sinful person laid upon the animal, as it were. Uh, imputed to that animal and then that animal's throat is cut either he does it or someone else does it and the blood is shed, the animal dies and now I the sinner walk away forgiven I think he has that idea in mind here the Lord has laid on him on Christ the sin and the iniquity of us all verse 10, God made his life an offering for sin verse 12, he bore the sin of many folks, this is the genius of God's plan of forgiveness. Because God is righteous and holy and just, he must punish sin. He's not like us. We see sin and we, we brush it off. And we have grandchildren. We have one that's with us a lot who we love and adore. And she's the cutest thing you've ever seen. Sometimes she'll rebel against us and sometimes she does it in such a cute way We kind of reprimand and then walk into the next room and laugh our heads off. And sometimes we don't even bother reprimanding or dealing. It's just, it's just not, you know. We can wink away sin and we do. Disregard it. The Father can't. If God does not deal with sin justly, He Himself becomes a sinner. The holy judge becomes an unjust judge. And so God has no choice. His nature deems it necessary that he deal with sin. So here's the big question. How can God punish sin and yet forgive those who commit it? How is God going to do this? He must punish sin, everyone, the million that I have committed by means of actions and attitudes and thoughts and motivations and speech, the million that or more that every one of us here as individuals have committed. How is he gonna forgive those sins and yet punish them at the same time? And of course, we see this biblical idea of substitution. That's that's how we can do this. Substitution. Someone else taking the punishment that we deserve. That's, whole, that's the whole theological idea behind this. He himself bore our sins. He was our substitute. Now not just anyone can be our substitute, by the way. A substitute for sinful mankind must possess a three, three qualities, I think. First of all, he must be one of us. A dog, a cat, a goldfish cannot be a substitute for me and you. Not ultimately. Now in the Old Testament, animals were. But those Old Testament sacrifices looked forward to this one, the Lamb of God, who would suffer and die. So the ultimate sacrifice, the the sacrifice that really provides forgiveness, must be one of us. 1 Timothy 2, verse 5 says, There's one God, and there's one mediator, one go-between, between between God and men. Who is that? The man, Christ Jesus. The go-between, the one who acts as our substitute must be one of us. Secondly, he must be sinless himself. The one who is our substitute can't be one of us in the sense of they're sinners too. The sacrifice that, that they grant must be pure and spotless. Looking back again at the Old Testament, the Mosaic Law demanded that animals be sacrificed and that those animals be spotless and perfect in order to qualify for sacrifice. Those animals foreshadowed, looked forward to the final sacrifice. John 1.29 One day John the Baptist pointed to Jesus and simply said this. Behold, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Look, guys, speaking to his followers, his disciples. Look, guys, there's Jesus, the Lamb, the final one, acting as the sacrifice, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Our Savior, our substitute, had to be ethically, morally spotless. He had to be pure, righteous, and sinless. And finally, in order to qualify as our substitute, He had to be God. Now why is that? So he had to be man, sinless man. One more qualification. He had to be God. Why is that? Because only God can bear all those pennies, right? All of the sins of the human race. And only God can bear divine judgment. Only the infinite can bear infinite judgment. And so it must be God as well. Only God could bear the full force and weight of the wrath of God is really the idea. The the, the idea of a cup is used as a symbol of God's wrath several times in the Old Testament and the New. A cup of God's wrath, the Bible speaks of. We find it in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Habakkuk, pastors in a series on Revelation, and he's already looked at two texts that speak of this, the cup of God's wrath, Revelation 14, Revelation 16. Matthew 26, 39 records how Jesus filled with sorrow in the garden of Gethsemane, asked the Father to relieve him of this task of bearing man's sin and punishment. Verse 39, he says, And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup, the cup of your wrath, let this cup pass from me. I think this whole text communicates very clearly the humanity of Christ. He is dreading the cross, because he, like no other facing a cross, knew what it entailed, not just the physical suffering, but he knew what the spiritual suffering would be as sin was poured upon him, as he was separated from the Father in all of that, and as the Father's judgment was poured upon him. He dreaded this. Let this cup of your wrath pass from me, nevertheless not as I will. So in, in a moment, he changes. Not what I want, but your will be done. Folks, at Golgotha, the father poured out his wrath, full strength, undiluted, upon the son. And he bore it as our substitute. Only God can do that. Can bear that. So now we see what Jesus has done. Now why did he do it? Two things Peter lists. First he did so that we would, be, that we would glorify him through holy living. So look at verse 24 again. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Now look at that phrase again. Might die to sin, live to righteousness. The Greek sentence structure is actually, it indicates that the the first phrase occurred, uh, that the phrases are, are worded a little differently. So look at the text. It actually could be translated this way. That we, having died, that we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. That we, at the moment you trust Christ, as we'll see in just a moment, we we die to sin's control and sin's dominion. That we, having already died to sin because we've trusted Christ, now we can live righteously. We see here again something of why Jesus died. By the way, we never find in these kinds of texts the idea that Jesus died to make our our lives easy, comfortable. We never find in these kinds of texts the idea that he died so that you could be healthy and wealthy, prosperous, Life's easy now. You've trusted Jesus. Life's going to be easy now. No, Satan's going to be on the attack now. It's going to be, in many cases, harder. Because you're no no longer on Satan's side. 1 Corinthians 10.31 Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. This is why God has saved us. This is why Christ bore our sins. Certainly it's forgiveness but the bigger picture, for the glory of God. It's all for the glory of God. Ephesians 2:9. That's a text we know well. Let me just read it to you. You know it by heart probably. For by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is a gift of God. Not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I'll say that again. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is grace. Through faith. And this, not of your own doing, you didn't do this, this, the grace and the faith, all that God has done in saving you. This is not something you just did. This all of this is a gift of God. So we, we can't boast. God saved me, because I was smarter than the rest of y'all. And I could figure it out. It only saves really smart people. Really, the Bible actually says the opposite. Not the wise, but the unwise. God saved me because, I, because of this or that. And I can brag on that. No, I, I can brag. If I want to brag about my wickedness, that's really all I can bring to the table. I was a sinner. This is who I, who I was. This is what I did. It's not braggable, but it's being honest. Who do I brag on? The Lord. Because he saved me. So we look at this text and we... Ephesians 2 8 9, and we think this way, but let's let's not forget verse 10. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So why? What's the, what's the answer to the why question? For good works, for obedience, for righteousness, which is what Peter's saying here. How is God best glorified? He's best glorified when those he saves live righteously. Why did Jesus do it? One reason is so that we live for him and glorify him by means of holy living. Now notice with me two things about genuine Christians. First of all, genuine Christians, uh, 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 every genuine Christian has died to sin. If you have trusted Christ, if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you are dead to sin. Now that means something, folks. Sin no longer controls you. Sin no longer reigns, reigns over us. It's tyranny in our lives is over. Romans chapter 6, verse 2. He, uh, we, we died to sin. How could we live in it any longer? Speaking to believers, you're dead to sin. Do you realize that? Do you know that? He says to them, and having died to sin, how, how can you get involved in it? How can you live in it? You can't, is the implication. Uh, Romans 6.6. 6. We know that our old self was crucified. We know that our, our old person, controlled by wickedness, depravity, and sin, that person is dead now. That person's been crucified, is dead now, with Christ, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. Before God saved us, folks, Sin controlled our every thought, motive, and action. We were its slave. That's just the bottom line. But sin's tyranny over us is broken if we know Christ. That's why there's no excuse for our sin. You know, we can never legitimately say, I can't stop doing that. If there's a sin in your life, a sin or two, or a habit of sin that's just there and you don't want it to go away, you like it, you hold on to it, you relish it, you, it, you're in its clutches, it's because you're making that choice. It's not because sin rules and reigns over you and you just can't get rid of it. No. For all of us who still have a hankering for sin, because The principle of sin still dwells within us until heaven. For all of us, we hold on to one or two. It's because we enjoy them and because we're making a conscious choice. Let me just say to to myself and to all of us, that sin or those sins don't have reign over you. You can walk away from that. You can and must stop thinking about it. Not, don't give opportunities for yourself to commit it. Don't put yourself in positions. Be, don't be near influences that will kind of edge you toward it or that. Get out of it. Just get out of it. Remember David? Flees Potiphar's wife, leaves the cloak behind, runs away and is through the looms, as it were, He knew what to do with sin. You just run. You hightail it and you run. Because the more you hang around, the more easily it will be to give in. The second thing Peter tells us about genuine Christians is that their purpose in life is to live to righteousness. You know, we sometimes flounder. What's my goal in life here? Well, folks, it cannot be. It cannot be happiness, prosperity, security, or success. That's, That's not why God saved us. He saved me to be happy, of course. No, he saved me to be holy. Just just if we can get that in our heads. Happiness, holiness. It's holiness. Heaven will be a place of unspeakable joy. And we look forward to that. This earth will not be a place of happiness often for the believer. And if God gives you happiness, wonderful. Thank him for this. If he gives you a measure of prosperity in your job, in your career, thank God. But we don't live for that. We live for his glory by means of obedient living. The second, when we ask the question why did you do it, the second answer is He did it so that we could be spiritually blessed. Verses 24 and 25 again. The end of verse 24. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Two spiritual blessings he lists here. There are many more, of course, but two he mentions. First, in Christ there is spiritual healing. By his wounds you've been healed. This is a quotation from the book of, from Isaiah 53. And that whole passage is talking about spiritual healing. As as Peter is here, there's no inkling in these texts that the author, that the Bible is talking about physical healing. But you hear this today often. The health and wealth gospel is built on this. There is physical health and healing in the gospel. You'll hear this. Now, if God gives you health... Wonderful. He is the one we praise. But the gospel doesn't promise health or wealth for that matter. This is spiritual healing. Note here the word the word wounds. By his wounds, you were healed. There's something to that word. He doesn't say it's actually in the singular. It's actually wound. By his wound, you were healed. Now why did, Jesus, why did Paul Peter put it in the singular? Because as Peter recalls Christ on the cross, he remembers what Christ really looked like. He remembers seeing a huge, hideous, bloody mess. Not the Christ on the cross depictions we see in pictures and other places. And there's a little gash here and a little you know, blood here trickling. That's not it at all. The scourging with the cab nine tails that Jesus received before he was crucified had torn off much of the skin and muscle. If you research that cab nine tails, how it was used by skilled Roman soldiers, it tore off most of the skin from his torso and his face. That's how it worked. Many died at the hands of the Roman soldier wielding that cab nine tails. You could see internal organs when this was done. And so Peter's thinking about this. And what does he see as he thinks about this in his mind's eye? He sees a gruesome, bloody, possibly unidentifiable hulk hanging on the cross. By that bloody wound, we're healed. Folks, we're not born spiritually healthy. In fact, the Bible says just the opposite. The Bible says we're born spiritually dead. Our souls are diseased and blackened by sin. Our souls are saturated by the leprosy and wickedness and depravity. Jesus died. That we might be whole, healthy, spiritually. For those who don't know Christ, there is no spiritual health. You hear that once in a while now in our world. Here's an interview from someone, about, you know, of someone, yeah, I'm a spiritual person. I never know what that means. The honest truth is, I'm a spiritually dead person, unless they're Christians. But there is wholeness and spiritual health in Christ. The second spiritual blessing Peter mentions is that in Christ there is daily direction and care. Verse 25, For you were straying like sheep. You were just going all over the place. No direction, no help, no guidance. No one watching over you, no one caring for you. But have now returned, turned is more the idea, to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. You've turned about. There was a day, speaking to these Christians, there was a day when you were just heading who knows what direction. But now you have turned, the same word used in other texts, of conversion. You've you've turned from the, the direction you were going all over the map to Christ in faith and repentance. And now you have a shepherd and an overseer someone who lovingly leads you, someone who watches over you and cares for you. Listen, my friend, if you know Christ, he is, he is your shepherd and your caregiver. He is watching over you. He's blessing you. When you don't certainly realize it, but he is he's there. There's, and this text does not indicate at all that, oh, because he is a shepherd and overseer of our souls... I won't have any trials or struggles or difficulties and so forth. No. As a shepherd, he will shepherd you through all of life, including the challenges. And he'll care for you, oversee you, minister to you in all of life, the highs and the lows. On the cross, Jesus did all that was necessary to meet our spiritual needs. But there's something that we must all do. And some of us have done this, and some of us haven't, I think. Throughout the passages of the New Testament, we find our response, our needed response, described. So here is Jesus, one who bore the sins of the human race, mine and yours. And sin is the issue, as we see And here is Jesus through whom there is blessing and care. What do I have to do? If if you're someone who's not run to Christ for forgiveness, this text calls you to do that. He bore your sin. He bore the punishment for your sin. But that's what he did now, the question is, what, what are we going to do? The Bible clearly teaches the step we take is turning from our sin and turning to Christ in faith, repentance, and faith. This answers the question how can I know, how can I know God? How can I honor God? How can I please God? How, how can I be forgiven of sin? How can I have a, a, a home in heaven? How can I not be punished eternally and instead be blessed eternally? This text answers those questions. And the human part of that is, I have got to turn away from my sin and run to Jesus for forgiveness. Let me just say, if you're here and you're not sure you've done that, don't wait another day. We have this procession back here. It ends up being a long line of people. Normally it's just the pastor. How are you? you? Nice to see you. Thank you. I'm glad you were here. In our church, it ends up being like 20 people out there. You feel like you're running the gauntlet, including little kids, you know, and some babies. The babies are the cutest ones, of course. But as you're walking through the gauntlet today, if you're here and you're thinking, I'm not sure I've done this. I'm not sure my sins are forgiven. I'm not sure I, I do own a home in heaven. I, 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 I'm not, I, my life has not been all about God and his glory. I've got real questions here. If that's you this morning, as you walk through that gauntlet and shake hands and talk to people, as you get to pastor, just look him in the eye and say, I need to talk to you. That's all, just that sentence. I need to talk to you. And either go in his office, he's got M&Ms in there, which is an ad benefit, but go in his office and chat today. Or set up a time for this week. But I wouldn't set up a time for Friday. I'd set up a time for tomorrow morning early. Because none of us are guaranteed another minute of life. This is not something to put off. Please do that today. And for those of us who know Christ. My goodness. This text calls us. Calls us. To reject sin. And live righteously. Righteously. And it calls us to give this message to people around us who we love. Please take this as the Holy Spirit's challenge to open your eyes to people around you and become evangelistically minded. Leave comfort zones and reach out with the gospel of Christ. Thank you, Father, for this portion of your word. It's so clear, so pointed please use it in our hearts today. Challenge every one of us, whatever our spiritual situation, our spiritual condition, use it in our hearts. We pray this things in Christ's name. Amen.